How's everyone doing? Good, good. Whew. It's been quite a couple weeks. Summer's coming to an end. Maybe it's already over for you guys. Um, it's a sad time. Life gets really busy. But today is a good day. It's a good morning. It's been a rich time in the church. We've had Dr. David Nystrom for the last couple weeks, and it's been uh, just great to hear from him. And then next week, Dr. Moffat Zimba, which will be amazing too. Um, and then Wayne comes back. It feels like it's been forever since Wayne's been here. Uh, but it's been a really good time. I've been so thankful for our time as a church and what we've been going through. Um, I'm thankful today to be up in front of you and to preach. We're going to be in Psalms, continuing in my standalone series, if that makes sense, uh, of the book of Psalms. <laughs> Wayne said that to me. He's like, preach a series in Psalms, a standalone series. I was like, oh, okay, whatever that is. In this series, we've been learning about the character of God, and as we look at how the psalmists pray, sing, and uh, converse with and about our God and Lord. And today we're going to continue pursuing that goal of wanting to know who God is. We're going to be in Psalm 86 today, another Psalm of David. And I'm really excited about what we're going to be covering this morning. Uh, In this Psalm, David is lamenting the situation in his life where once again he finds himself uh, at stake of losing his life. There are men that are out to kill him and he's pleading to God to help him out. He's in a sticky situation, and he's calling God to intervene and to literally save him. And as we'll read shortly, uh, David, in his pleading, speaks on behalf of his own case and and also speaks to God's character as why he should be saved. Um, He speaks to who God is. And David is distinguishing himself before God as a servant of God, and he calls upon God's uh, character for his help. And... As I was reading through this psalm, some of it sounded familiar to the things that we may have done uh, in situations where we need help. And we reach out to someone, maybe the only person that we can think of that can actually help us in that situation. Um, Does this sound familiar, maybe to you mother specifically? Mom, I'm your son. I'm your only son. I've worked really hard in this class. I've been studying a lot. I've been doing all my homework you know what I've been going through? Can you please ask the teacher for an extension on this test? That one might have been from personal experience. Uh, we've all probably uh, pleaded speaking to the other person's character as well. Boss, I really appreciate working for you. Uh, you've always been fair and e- even been really understanding. And if you could just give me some leeway in this situation, I would be extremely grateful. And David does something along those lines in this psalm. And in doing so, he's looking for the favor of God. He takes both approaches as he brings his dire situation and desperate heart before the Lord. So as we work through David's psalm that has been titled in my Bible and maybe yours, Great is Your Steadfast Love, we'll look at who David claims God to be. And during my preparation, this made me ask the question, where did David get this idea of who God is? Where did this come from? And so later, I want to take us straight to the source and answer the question, who is God? Who is God? That's our question today, and that's what I want to answer through the word of God. So if you can open up your Bibles, if you, already ha- if you haven't already, to Psalm 86, and read with me as I um, read it aloud, and then we'll pray. Psalm 86. 
Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. God, we come before you this morning and we're just so thankful to have your word, to have your truth that we can read, that we can study, and God, that we can know you. And so this morning, as we uh, dive into Psalm 86, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive your truth. God, that you would speak to us. God, that you would speak through me. um, That you would be glorified above all. We give this time to you, and we love you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I want to cover a few observations uh, about David's psalm here. And these observations may seem kind of random and far from uh, who God is, but hopefully in the end it'll all come together to help explain his character. So, like I said, David is an honest confession about his situation, his depravity, his lack of ability to continue on his own strength, uh, to be able to handle this conversation on his own. He can't do it. He needs God. Um, And he knows he needs God not only to live the life that God has called him to, but even just right now, he needs God to live. He won't be alive without God's intervention. And so at the beginning of this passage, David is calling upon God, letting him know his request, keep me alive. And in this plea from verses 1 through 6, he's saying, God, save my life. I'm your servant, and I trust you. And then we come to verses 7 and 8, which really started to intrigue me. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Verse 7 here makes a lot of sense to me, uh, calling upon God in a time of trouble. I think we've all done that. I can relate to that. Check. Understood. What intrigues me is verse 8. There is none like you among the gods. Gods? What? I've grown up, and maybe you have too, with the phrase, other gods in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And it made sense that God was above all other things. Uh, Everything else, everyone else, 
Nothing is bigger or more powerful than him. But it's the language around these verses that talk about other gods that I never gave much thought to. The other gods, who were they? Does it really mean gods? Maybe it means things in life that take the place of God. And what I've come to realize and what's clicked is that David and those other authors in the Bible who uh, say other gods are purposeful when saying that. I thought of the Ten Commandments and the commandment not to have any other gods before God. Think of the Egyptian gods. I mean, Moses faced Pharaoh and Pharaoh's priests called upon the gods of Egypt. Or how the ten plagues were in direct response to the ten gods of Egypt. Or think of later in the Bible with Elijah and his encounter with uh, Baal. And there's many other examples of different gods throughout the scriptures. Today, we interpret that commandment in Exodus, where I've heard it be interpreted as, don't let other things come before God, when it says don't have other gods before God. Uh, things in life like sports, school, relationships, finances, um, and the list goes on. And that's good. I think there's a lot of truth in not letting other things come before God. But I don't think that's what God was saying to Moses or David in this text. David in this psalm is not saying, God, there's none like you among the other facets of my life that take a lot of my time and attention that often draw me away from you. My money and my power aren't really like you. They can't do what you do. That's not what David's saying. Uh, just like Moses was saying that there are, uh, and David is saying in this psalm, there are other gods in this world, other gods at play, spiritual beings, spiritual powers that want control, that people can call upon, that are alive and affect the people of this world. They are at odds with the God of the universe. But despite their existence, they don't even come close to the God that we know. All other gods truly don't compare. I think that's what David is saying. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. And so in verse 8, David is acknowledging who God is by placing him where he rightfully belongs, above everything. And we read that in verse 9, when David writes, that all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. But I thought it was interesting that David takes the time to write verse 8 to, to acknowledge that there are other gods in this world, but just claim that God is above them all. So this new realization uh, that came about in this psalm didn't blow me away. I wasn't in awe, but it, uh, it did point out a few things for me. Number one, it helped me make better sense of what the Bible was saying in these passages that talk about other gods. It helped me have a fuller understanding of what the authors are going through and not just a contextualized application, which can be good as long as it doesn't change the meaning of the text along the way. So when the Bible says other gods, it's not talking about just other things that come before God in our lives, but it really means other gods. And it makes me think about if that reality that was true in the Bible, if that reality is still true today, and I think that it is. So that was the first thing that uh, came about. Number two, it elevated who God was in my eyes. By acknowledging that there are other gods in this world and that God is above them all, it helped me have a clearer, better view of God's place. Seated on high, King of kings, Lord of lords. 
and help me understand more of his power, his goodness, and his sovereignty, his jealousy, and how he is almighty. And thirdly, it made me reconsider and take a new look at the gods that are present today. It has helped me acknowledge that the spiritual presence that is in this world that is evil, that is against God, and is not for us. Now, that's not a new concept in the world today, but it is one that often gets drowned out, I think, in our environment, in a first-world-developed America, where there seems to be a logical, reasonable explanation to everything, and the spiritual just doesn't come into play. So in my time of study, it was very healthy for me to be challenged in this area, and not just to read God's as activities and interests that can come before my worship of God. So, David uh, acknowledges that there are other gods, but is praising the Lord, that he is above them all. And then he goes on to say, in verse 11, that he wants to model his life after God's. And that says a lot. I don't know if you have ever taken the time to literally tell someone, I want to model my life after yours. Or maybe someone has told you that. And if they have, uh, I'm sure you would be incredibly humbled and... Um, appreciative that would, say, that would communicate a lot about what that person thinks of you so I think that's our ultimate way of worship, worshiping and complimenting and acknowledging God is by imitating ourselves after him and that's what David says here I want to be like you God that's what David wants to do so these were just a few brief observations about the beginning of this text and uh, they bring me to verse 15 where I want to focus in on now, I have a confession to make to all of you today. I picked Psalm 86 because I would then get to preach on Exodus 34. This may be, <laughs> that might be confusing. But what I wanted, uh, I wanted to continue in the book of Psalms, but I was really being drawn to this passage in Exodus. And um, then God led me to Psalm 86, where David is drawing upon a specific conversation between Moses and God found in Exodus 34, 6 through 8. So here we are. God is good. Exodus 34, 6 through 8. Uh, this passage in the Old Testament is what David is referencing throughout Psalm 86. Uh, for instance, in verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Or verse 3, Verse 13, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. And then definitely verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David is drawing from this one passage in Exodus. And why? Why this passage? Well, this question becomes even bigger when you hear that this passage in Exodus is quite possibly the most quoted scripture by scripture. I'll repeat that. This is maybe the most quoted scripture by scripture in all the Bible. Exodus 34, 6 through 8. And these phrases, abounding in steadfast love, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, may seem familiar to you, and they should, as they are found all throughout the Bible. And those writers... And authors are all referencing this one passage in Exodus. So if you could turn with me. I know your curiosity is peaked now. Yes. Exodus 34, 6 through 8. 
We'll come back to Psalm 86, I promise. I want to read this passage that the Bible seems to think is so important because it's repeated so often. I think God thinks it's important because, as we know, truly, truly, repetition is the way that God likes to emphasize the truth. This passage is so important in reference so often because we are hearing who God is from God himself. One of the few times that God does this in the entire Bible. One author states it this way, this is the ground zero of theology. Exodus 34, 6 through 8. But before I read that, I just want to catch everyone up at where we're at in Exodus. I took you to Psalm 86, and I'm taking you back to Exodus. So let me just catch you up on where we're at. At this point, the Israelites are on their journey in the desert, uh, having escaped from Egypt. Moses has been following God's instruction on giving the Israelites plans and guidelines for them as a nation and in leading them to the promised land. Along the way, God has given instruction about the tabernacle. He's given laws about social justice, laws about Sabbath and different festivals. He's given manna from heaven and other sovereign miracles of provision and protection. He's talked about the conquest of the promised land to come. So this is all happening in Exodus. And then Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. And this starts in chapter 20. And then all the way at the end of chapter 31... It comes to an end when verse 16 says, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments. And Moses must have been up on Mount Sinai for a while, for quite some time, because chapter 32 goes into how the people thought something had happened to him. And they were prepared to move on from Moses. And in fact, they started that process. They created the golden calf. I don't know if you remember that. Um, when Moses finally does come down from the mountain, we know that when he sees the golden calf, he is absolutely furious. And he throws down the tablets in a rage, and they break. And then Moses goes to Aaron, whom he left in charge, and you should read it sometime. Uh, Aaron just has this terrible excuse of what happened. It's sad and pitiful. Aaron at one point says something like, I threw the gold in the fire and out came a calf. As if to say, I'm not really sure how it happened, Moses. Before I knew it, all the people had done this terrible thing. Don't look at me. It's the people, Moses. You know, the terrible, annoying, rebellious people. Sure, Aaron. Sure. God at this point is very fed up. And he voices his frustration to Moses. And pretty much says that he wants to start over. He wants to start over with Moses. He's so fed up with the Israelites that he just wants to be done, push the restart button with a new nation, a new people, and have Moses be the leader. Let's just pause and think about that. Uh, God has come to a point where he's frustrated and so angry that he doesn't want to do it anymore with these people. And we can all think of other times where God has become frustrated and so frustrated to the point where he sent a flood and then promised never to flood the earth again. But he's becoming so frustrated now that he wants to wipe out all the Israelites. Exodus 32.10 says, Now therefore let me alone, he's speaking to Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. He's letting Moses in on his thoughts, and just says, let me get rid of them. These people are making me really angry, and you and I can just start over. God wants to wipe them out, and... 
he would have been perfectly just in doing so. But then Moses intercedes, and he goes to work on changing God's mind. Now, this idea of changing God's mind was new to me. I've always thought God is resolute and unwavering, and things are planned out for eternity. Um, and, And that is true, but he can also respond to what happens to our prayers and to our requests. And this passage speaks to that. This conversation with Moses and God is mind-blowing to me. A theologian, Gary Brashear, says, this is God processing his feelings with a human partner. And I love this. I love this idea that God processes with us. He can work at our level for our sake. So in chapter 32 and 33, Moses is trying to change God's mind, trying to convince him that he doesn't have to do that that it might be better to stick with the Israelites because of the PR damage that it would do to God's name, the bad press that God would receive, and the confidence that other nations would have uh, going against God. Moses is saying, your name is at stake here, which means a great deal. And then in verse 17 of chapter 33, we see that God has listened to Moses. And I wish we had more time to go into how God listens and can change his mind in a way, but we see it. We don't have time this morning, but we see that God does. And he responds, God listens to Moses and says, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God changed his mind. He responded to Moses' pleading. Side note, have you noticed the emphasis on names here? God's name is at stake God knew Moses by name. We'll come back to that in a second. So, God has given Moses the Ten Commandments. The Israelites turn their own way again. God is fed up and wants to kill them all. Moses talks them out of it. This is a crazy story in Exodus, and it gets even better. Then verse 18 says, Moses says, Please show me your glory. What a request. Imagine being really tight with God. I mean, handpicked to lead God's own people. You have routine conversations with God about life, about the people, about future plans. And now you've just, in a way, changed the mind of God who wanted to start over with Israel. This is a pretty cool relationship that Moses has with God. And he's not really content with where it's at. He wants more. Right after that intense conversation, he asked to see God's glory. Moses is asking for a new level of intimacy with God. He wants on a whole new level of relationship with God. And God answers his request with something that may sound like a compromise, but is entirely more than Moses originally wanted. God says that Moses will not be able to see his face because man shall not see me and live. And the best part of this is verse 19 when God says, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now when I read this, it seems like settling. And Moses has to be content not to see God but experience his goodness, which also just seems like less than what Moses wanted. But what is God really saying? What does he mean by saying, I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord? Herein lies the answer to so much. 
We have to remember that in biblical times, in this culture, a name meant so much more than a name does now. A name had to do with who that person was, their character. So what God is actually saying is, you can't see my face, but I'll do you one better. I'll tell you exactly who I am. Before this, people had named God. They had come up with the title. And that's why before Exodus, we usually read the God of Abraham, or the God of Moses, or the God of Israel. Because God hadn't really introduced himself to the people yet. And we see that this is how gods and deities are referred to in other nations too. The gods of Egypt, the gods of the Philistines. But it's not until Moses and the burning bush that we hear God say his own name, Yahweh. And even at the burning bush, God introduces himself as Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So it's not until now, in Exodus 34, that we hear God explain who he is, what his name Yahweh means. One pastor put it this way, this moment of revelation on Mount Sinai where we learn God's name, it's the moment in the Hebrew Bible. The rest of what we call the Old Testament is just story after story of this God in action. So, without further ado, let's get to this moment. Exodus 34, I'm going to read 5 through 7. And I hope you can feel the excitement building in this moment. What is at stake here? What's happening The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In an epic moment on the mountain, we hear who God is from God himself. Let's look at this more closely. He starts by repeating his name, the Lord, the Lord, which is Yahweh, Yahweh. The English translation here, the Lord, doesn't really do Yahweh complete justice. It sounds more like a title here, a title like you would call the Queen of England or Judge Judy. Calling God the Lord would be like calling, like me calling Becky the wife. This would be weird because I'm in close relationship with her. We're married, and uh, this, that isn't the language of intimacy. I don't call her by her title. I call her by her name. See the difference? The name implies closeness and relationships, and that's what God is doing, letting us in and inviting us into close relationship with him, which no other God can do. So God starts by giving his name, which is also sometimes different than how we go about talking about God. When asked about God, we can often start with describing facts about him, maybe the omnis of God, omnipresent, omniscient, Um, not bad, But what about a name? If someone asks me about who my wife is, I don't just skip over her name and start with, she's 5'7", blonde, uh, blue eyes, a little bit of yellow, she's in her 20s. While these things are all true and facts about her, at some point you would probably want to know what makes her her, who she is, what is she like, is she fun or more serious, is she social or shy, is she type A or more laid back? 
or why, what made me fall in love with her. Sometimes this is how we talk about God. We skip his name and just start stating facts, missing what makes him who he is. So he repeats his name to emphasize who he is and to make us pause and think about who he is before going on and telling us more about who he is. It's beautiful. And this is why it is even more than Moses asked for. This isn't just getting to see God. This is God revealing himself, explaining his name, his character in a whole new way. So after his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, he goes into some specific descriptions. And I want to talk about the first three descriptions that God uses on himself that are quoted by David in Psalm 86. The rest of the verses that I read are really, really good. And I would encourage you to take the time to wrestle with what it means when God says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's the part I won't be able to cover this morning. But it's a part of who God says he is, so it is very important. So, now we're kind of in between Psalm 86 and Exodus 34 here. Um, But I want to talk about the first description, which is the compassionate and gracious God, or merciful and gracious. This phrase in Hebrew is Reham we Hanun. I do not know if I'm saying that right, but I'm hoping if I say it with confidence, you all think that it's right. And it's written in this way, Reham we Hanun, uh, with purpose. The words not only sound alike, but they are placed side by side to help explain each word. So let me break this down a little bit. Compassionate. The word here, compassionate, is the root word Reham. And this is where we get this feeling that a uh, compassionate, where a, that a mother has toward her infant child. The kind of motherly love that is exemplified in a story when King Solomon has the two women who claim that the baby is theirs. And King Solomon gives the order to divide the baby in half. And the mother was deeply moved out of love for her son, that kind of love, and begs the king to give the baby to the other woman, just don't kill the baby. That's the kind of compassionate love that Rahim is. It's a feeling word. In contrast, gracious is an action word. The root word, hanan. It means to show grace. It is something you do. To hanan somebody is to help them in their time of distress and need. So throughout the Psalms, we see this word as a prayer to God, asking that God would rescue them. The Hanun would be that Israel be saved, or in Psalm 86, that David would be saved. And so together, Reham we Hanun is a powerful, deep description of God's mercy. It conveys that God's baseline emotion, his standard feeling towards us, is mercy and compassion. We worship a God who feels, who cares about us, And we worship a God who acts, who will help us. So that's the first one. Merciful and gracious. Next, 
David refers to God being slow to anger. This is my favorite. In Hebrew, it's erek apayim, which literally means long of nostrils. <laughs> now follow me on how this makes sense in describing God's temperament. When you get angry, think about the last time something got your blood really boiling. You have a physical reaction. It's not just your emotions that get involved. Your body starts to do things. Um, when you get angry, your, ch your chest sucks in a gulp of air. Your nostrils flare out. I can't do that on command, but I know some people can. Um, I think I do when I get angry. Your nostrils flare out, and you verbally spew all over the person that caused you to be outraged. It was a physical reaction. Now, if you're slow to anger, when you become upset, you shut your mouth, you purse your lips, like I'm doing right and then you breathe in through your nose. This would mean you are erect apayam, long of nostrils, slow to anger. This means that you are not quick-tempered, but you have self-control. You can still get frustrated, but you don't lose it. You don't explode when you're mad. I, I love this. I'm not good at it, uh, but I love the concept of being long of nostril, something I seek to be. This is also reminding us that, yes, God does get angry. It takes a lot, but God gets angry. But he, does, um, he has those feelings of frustration and anger, but he's controlled. I mean, we just saw how angry he got in Exodus and how he wanted to take out all of Israel. But God is a God of self-control. He is in control the whole time. So, slow to anger. And then thirdly, David talks about abounding in love and faithfulness. In Hebrew, these words are hesed and emet. Hesed, uh, there's, there's no real direct translation for this word into the English. But there are three phrases that can really help us understand uh, what this word embodies. So these three phrases are steadfast love, unfailing love, and covenant loyalty. So steadfast love, it's constant. Um, it is always there, unfailing, uh, never going to let us down. And covenant loyalty. They all kind of intermingle their definitions, but each individual phrase helps us have a fuller picture of this kind of love. There's also this idea of covenant, uh, covenant loyalty, uh, which is a word we don't use often today. Uh, the closest thing we would have to that word would be promise. But today, promises seem to be broken all the time, and we say the words, I promise, more flippantly than ever before. So covenant is, is very strong to me. And in the Bible, there were very heavy consequences for breaking a covenant, a promise with someone else. For example, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, back in Genesis, God has Abraham gather, this is a weird story, God has Abraham gather a bunch of animals and then cuts them in half, and puts them on the ground and tells Abraham to walk through them. And then Abraham falls in a deep sleep and he has a dream and he sees that God, the smoking thing, go through the same animals. And what he's saying there is that if either one of us break this covenant, may we end up like the animals that we just walked through. So there are, a covenant is no small thing. It, it's very serious, and it is the, the 
a deep bond that you are creating with someone. So, has said, bounty in love, faithfulness, amet. This means truth. Uh, it's connected to the word amen. Usually we say amen to close a prayer or when someone says something that rings true with us. It can also be translated to trustworthy. This conveys that you can rely on God. You can count on God. He is faithful. He will be there. One pastor points out brilliantly that when you put these two words together, hamet and uh, hased and emet, it becomes incendiary. I think I'm saying that right, which means that they help define each other. All you lit majors out there, please nod your heads yes. No, I'm wrong. Incendiary? That's not the right word. I-N-C-E-N-D-I-A-R-Y. It's the right word. Someone says, I got some confirmation out there. (laughs) Homework for all you guys. Go go check me. (laughs) This whole week, like, I was worried about that word. (laughs) Just didn't sound right. All right. Anyways, moving on. Some kind of device that means that when they're put together, they help each other. So, for my sermon today, that word means that God's love is his faithfulness, and God's faithfulness is his love. Those two help define each other, help get the point across, and help better explain the kind of love that God has. God's love is his faithfulness, and God's faithfulness is his love. So to that point, Hesed and Amet, we have God's steadfast love, unfailing love, covenant, covenant loyalty, and we have his trustworthiness and faithfulness. To us, this phrase, the third one, abounding in love and faithfulness, can make us simply think about God's compassion. But it's so much more than that. Hesed and Amet are about God's loyalty and how he will never, ever leave us no matter what the cost. The pairing of these two words is found all over the Bible. It's used 126 times in Psalms alone. It's one of the major themes of the gospel. And it's found in the gospels, specifically in John 1.14 when describing who Jesus is. And actually John is quoting Exodus 34 when he writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Hesed and Amet. John Mark Comer, a pastor in Portland, says that John is saying that Jesus is the embodiment of Hesed and Emet. Jesus came to bless the world, all because thousands of years ago, Yahweh made a promise. When Israel failed, Yahweh was faithful. Even before that, when Adam failed, he was faithful. And when you and I failed, God was still faithful. To bless and heal and free and save, Jesus takes all all our failure millennia of broken promises and he drags it to the cross absorbing it in his death and then breaking its hold over humanity through his resurrection 
God today to you and to me is still merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we are invited into intimate relationship with him, the God whose love is eternal and is faithful even when we fail him over and over again. So now that we are armed with intimate detail of who God is from God himself, we can see why David is using the language that he is using in Psalm 86. And even its title, Great is Your Steadfast Love, hopefully rings truer and deeper than before. We can read a verse like verse 5 when David writes, For you, O Lord, are forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And know that David is calling upon God's has said, his unfailing, steadfast, and covenant loyalty to us. Or verse 12, when he talks about giving thanks to the Lord with his whole heart and glorifying the name of God forever. The name, not just the title of God, but his name, Yahweh. So, I have a few quick points of application from Psalm 86. First, from verses 15 to 16, know and remember God's covenantal love, which is wrapped up in who he is. So know God. Before any of the other points of application, knowing God and who he is is key. It's pivotal. It's what he's all about after all. He wants us to have that relationship with him. He wants us to know that he is Yahweh. Rest assured in his said and amet, knowing that he wants to pour that love out onto each and every one of us every day. Remember that God has told us his name, Yahweh, and he's inviting us to, to have a close relationship with him. And when I say close, it's, I mean, now that we know what the Israelites went through and how Moses was the only one having those types of conversations with him, we can have a relationship even better than Moses could with Christ. God told us his name. And even more proof of what that name entails is... Uh, and how closely God wants to be with us is when Jesus in the New Testament tells us to call God Father. The closest relationship we can have with God is as his children. So if you already know of God's covenantal love, then remember it. Dwell in it. Draw from it often, as often as you can. There is a peace and comfort that come from focusing on who God is. Secondly, from verse 2, surrender to God. Ask for his help. Recognize your need for Christ, the perfect embodiment of a hased and a met. Acknowledge your need to be rescued. You cannot live this life on your own and upon your own strength. Sooner or later, you're going to come to a place where you, like David, are surrounded by enemies on all sides, and there's just no way to get out of it. And you can look through this psalm and pick out the thing or the things that you should say or, or have said to God. God, I am poor and needy. God, listen to my plea for grace. God, in this day of trouble, I call upon you. God, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. We can pray these things that David prayed because we know that same God and we know who he is and what he does. Each and every one of us are fallen. We are sinful. We will let people down. We will let ourselves down. We will let God down. Kind of like the Israelites did and did again and continue to do. 
to the point where Moses had to intervene and intercede on their behalf. Now, we don't have Moses, as legendary as that would be. We actually have someone far better. We have Jesus Christ, who interceded on the cross for us. So victory is already ours. We have Christ who doesn't let anyone down. He is always there. He is faithful. He is constant. He is steadfast. And we just have to surrender to him. And surrender to him daily, constantly. Throughout each hour, we need to hand over the controls of our lives to him. It's so easy to give the controls over to God when something hard happens. And slowly, as the hours or days go by, as that hard moment passes, we start to grab the controls back from God. Uh, this made me think of when I was a kid. Um, I imagine the face and similar frustration that my dad would show me as I would be working on some project or chore around the house, and I couldn't do it. I didn't know how to do it or whatever I was using, the tool. I just I was getting so frustrated. I, I kept failing, and so I would ask him for help, and he would graciously show me the right way to do it or how to use the tool, whatever it was. And as soon as I grabbed the concept of what he was doing, I just grabbed it back from him. I said, okay, 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 I got it, I got it, I got it. And in just that way, he, my parents did not like when I said, okay, 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 okay I got it, I got it, I got it. Um, and that was just pride in me. I just wanted to do it. I, I was being shown how to do it, and as, they wouldn't even finish. And I would just take back, okay, I got it, I'm going to do it. And then the face that I'm talking about is the face that he would look at me, and he just knew I was going to fail again. I didn't listen to the whole instruction. I didn't get all of it. I didn't fully surrender. Um, that whole story is just to say surrender to God. <laughs> surrender to God fully and constantly and do it often. Uh, don't take back the controls on your life. Third, from verse 11, when David prays, Teach me your way, O Lord. So to be, uh, that I may walk in your truth, unite my heart to fear your name. So desire to be like God. And this last point of application can only come and follow suit with the previous points. After coming to know who God is, remembering God's covenantal love, and then surrendering to him, then comes desiring to be like God. David prays this, like I just said in verse 11. So we need to pursue him and walk with him. And this takes time and conscious effort. You just can't surrender to God and then all of a sudden you're like God. Though that would be nice. You have to pursue him. You have to take an active approach to modeling your life like that of Christ. Like I mentioned before, David chose to do that. And it's our highest compliment that we can give God is, is saying, I want to, my life, I want to be like yours. So let's pray that our hearts are united to his that our hearts break for what breaks his. And this reminded me of the trip that uh, when I took the youth group and the young adults to San Francisco just a couple weeks ago uh, to feed the homeless in the Tenderloin District. And we uh, drove down to partner with YWAM, and uh, we got to San Francisco a little bit early to go to Pier 39, show them the sights. And we had this long drive across town uh, to the base, and a lot of traffic, and so uh, we just saw a lot of the city, which was great. Um, and as many of you know, and you've been to San Francisco, there are a lot of homeless people throughout the entire city. And the difference of how the students viewed those people before 
and after is remarkable. There's a huge difference. And so we get to the base, and the leaders there are kind of briefing us on what the night's going to hold. We're going to have hot chocolate. We're going to walk around these certain blocks that they have for us. We're going to approach people, hand out hot chocolate, pray for them, share the gospel if we can, and just love on them. So we break up into groups, and we pray before heading out. And we, they encourage us to pray that we would see these people the way that God sees them. That our hearts would break like God's heart breaks for them. And then we pray these prayers. We did our service, and we came back, and we had a time of sharing. And I was just so overjoyed to hear junior high and high school students say things like, I, I get I get it. I get how God's heart breaks for them and how they need love and how they need, uh, I don't view them in maybe the judgmental uh, looking down on them kind of way that we did even driving to them that, very, that same day, driving to the base and seeing them. I don't look at them the same anymore because my, their hearts were united with God's heart. And so that's our prayer, that God's, our hearts would be united with his. We would see this world the way that God sees it, for its brokenness, for its need for truth and love. And that not just seeing it, but then we would act on that. And we would love like God has called us to love. So those are the three points of application. There are many, many more found in these passages, but the three that struck me firmly And I hope there's something from God's truth this morning that has struck you so that the truth would shape and mold your life. Let's pray. God, you are God, Yahweh. And it is so, as I prayed at the beginning, and and now even more so, it is so good that we can know you. You are just not a God of Israel or a God of Moses, but we have your name and we know who you are. You have told us through your word exactly who you are. And God, I pray that as we go out from church today, that we would not be the same after hearing who you are. That we would come to be in relationship with you, that we would go deeper in that relationship with you. God, that we would surrender to you, that we would recognize that we can't do it on our own. And it's so tempting, it's our nature to want to do life on our own. We don't even recognize it sometimes. So I pray that you would help remind us to come to you often, that we would surrender to you daily and give you control over our lives, over our lives. And God, we also pray that uh, we just want to be like you in every way. And so we pray that as we see this world, we would see it how you see it as we interact with other people, God, that we would be uh, an example of you, your truth, your love. Um, God, that you would just use us for your kingdom, that you may be glorified. We love you, Lord. And we're so thankful for all that you have done, that you have given us Christ, that you have poured out and continue to pour out to us every day your has said and met to us. So we give this to you. We love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.